Amen. Let us turn to our confessional reading. Lord's Day 30, and we're moving ahead just a little bit because I had some work done on a Lord's Day 30 sermon from before I before I ever came here. And so for uh, the, the week of Christmas, we'll jump ahead just a couple of Lord's Days to Lord's Day 30, and then we'll uh, come back, Lord willing, 28 and 29 in the next couple of weeks. But they're all together on the Lord's Supper, so uh, they'll all uh, fit under that same umbrella. This is Lord's Day 30 on the Lord's Supper. I'll read, I'll read question and answer 80, as it is uh, quite lengthy, and then together let's do 81 and 82. So I'll do the question and the answer for 80, and then we'll then we'll come together after that. So question and answer 80. How does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. And now together let's uh, say the answer. Here's the question for 81. Together we'll say the answer. Who should come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and to also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper, who show that what they who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly no that would dishonor god's covenant and bring down god's wrath upon the entire congregation therefore according to the instruction of christ and his apostles the christian church is duty bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. It's the confession we hold in common. Let us turn now to Romans chapter 6. And we'll read uh, verses 5 to 11. And we'll focus on verses 8 to 11. Page 1199. 
Romans 6 will begin our reading at verse 5. Read to 11, focused on 8 to 11. Let us hear the word of God. Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So far the reading, the holy word of God. And even even beyond 8 and 11, we're even especially looking at 9 and 10 together this evening. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, and birth and death, usually these words stand in direct opposition to each other. We might count the births and we might count the, the deaths in a certain place over a certain amount of time and that's, that's birth is tied to Life and death is tied to death. In Jesus Christ, that pattern is completely broken. Because in Jesus Christ, we have the one who was alive before his birth and conception. We have the one who has existed from eternity past, before Abraham was, I am. And then in the death of Christ... We have the one who conquers the grave never to die again. Unlike the other resurrections of the Old and New Testament, which were a demonstration of God's power often through his prophets, but yet just a death that would lead to another death. No, no, Christ's resurrection is is the resurrection that conquers death. The resurrection to die no more. Jesus Christ completely breaks the pattern. He's alive before his conception and birth. He is alive after his death. Surely, as the scriptures say again and again, as we may even remember Boaz saying in Ruth 3 and many other uh, saints saying throughout the Old Testament, surely the Lord lives. He breaks the pattern. He breaks death. And so we look to our living Savior, born of the Virgin Mary. He was crucified. He was dead and buried. He rose again from the dead. And we consider his victory. And that's our our theme uh, this evening. The death of Christ is the victory over death. And that's really a paraphrase of uh, verses 9 and 10. And we're going to look at with three points. Completed at Calvary. Christ's victory over death was completed at Calvary. Christ's victory over death leads to life. That's our second point. And our third point is that Christ's victory over death 
is worthy of worship. So first, it is completed at Calvary. And a question, answer 80, plainly speaking of that one act through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he accomplished on the cross once for all. And that's one of the times when the catechism is very closely following the language of Scripture. Now look at verse 10 of our text. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Or we consider other plain texts, such as Hebrews 7, 26 and 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, no need to offer sacrifices daily like those high priests, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And so, uh, people of God, the death of Jesus Christ is that one death. And so the Lord's Supper is, is a declaration. It's a declaration. Look at that language of declaration. The Lord's Supper declares to us. It also declares to us. The Lord's Supper is a declaration. It's a celebration that looks back to the one-time reality on the cross, to the one-time act of Jesus Christ, which is the declaration of salvation, what Christ accomplished there that one time on the cross. The declaration of the cross is what the Lord's Supper declares by pointing us back to. Let's think about that language of declaration. That language of it is done. And certainly the declaration of the cross is tied, for example, to the declaration of justification. There's more that we could say, but we're just going to focus on that for a few minutes. The declaration of justification. Looking back to the cross, the Lord's Supper points us to that time when it is declared, your sins are forgiven. Now, brothers and sisters, let's, let's illustrate in a couple of ways how, how essential that is and how comforting we should leave the matter there in Christ, in what he has done and what he declares. So we can think about it this way. Who would go before a judge and be declared not guilty by the judge and then after the declaration of not guilty, stand up and say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've got to add some things to this. It's, it's not over until I add my own words and my own declaration to these proceedings. Who would be so foolish when it is declared not guilty? That's it. We don't stand up and try to add our own words and our own work to the situation. Or maybe uh, because uh, being pulled over by a police officer may be more familiar than stepping into a courtroom for some of us, say that you've been pulled over by a police officer. And it's one of those times, and sometimes this, this happens, when you're pulled over and you don't get a ticket. You have violated the traffic laws 
but there is mercy. And there's a declaration. No ticket. You can go. Well, who stops and says, well, hold on, wait a second, wait a second. Let me, let me add you know, my own declaration, my own words. Let me add some things here. I don't think it's over yet. No, you say, thank you, and you go. Well, these are just faint illustrations. These are just faint pictures of the declaration which the declaration of the Lord's Supper looks back upon on the cross. There is the work of justification. And there is where we sinners are declared not guilty. Why would we stand up and say, hold on, hold on, wait a minute. Let me add my own works to this. Let me add my own declaration to this. I don't, I don't think it's done. Something else needs to happen. Why would we ever be so foolish? It is done. You are not guilty in Christ. And that is where we leave our sins. That is where it's accomplished. It's completed at Calvary. We do not add to it. We do not pretend that Calvary itself must be repeated. No, we just look back to the once completed reality with the often repeated sign that goes back to it. But but no, we don't actually repeat Calvary. It's the one declaration. Not guilty. It's the one accomplishment. Let us not add to it. Let us not redo it. Let us see how sad it is, how appropriate the ending of Lord's Day 80 is whenever whenever in any way you try to add to it. And indeed, there's, there, is a, uh, there is something especially idolatrous about trying to add to it by thinking that Calvary itself must be repeated by some ceremony becoming Calvary again and again. No, 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 no. It is, it is done there and it is over. Completed at Calvary. And so rather than to doubt, we hear the declaration. We are called to trust by faith. We are not called to doubt. We are not called to add. We are called to trust. That is how that is how question and answer eighty one speaks of of our attitude in the Lord's Supper, where we're where we're looking at the declaration that points back to the declaration. How how should you come to the Lord's table? those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that the remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. With that, uh, brothers and sisters, let's then consider 
how the victory over death leads to life. This is our second point. The night of Christ's death was a night of apparent victory for Satan. And that is because after the fall, one way that we could say it is that death is a power that Satan is allowed by God to have. Think of how uh, the author of Hebrews says it in Hebrews 2 verse 14. Hebrews 2 verse 14 speaks about the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. It's the language of Hebrews 2 verse 14. We uh, put this together with uh, other texts, such as the last verse of Romans 6, uh, for the wages of sin is death. We put this together also with the fact that in Colossians 1 verse 13, we must be delivered from the domain of darkness. What, What happens when we put these scriptural texts and images together? We are in sin in the domain of death, in the domain of Satan, in that domain where God has allowed Satan to have a certain power. John Calvin makes this truth personal in this way when he said, quote, the devil is called the prince of this world, not because he has a kingdom separated from God, but because by God's permission, the devil exercises his tyranny over the world. Let us be ashamed of our miserable condition. There is but one deliverer who frees and rescues us from this dreadful slavery. End of quote. And again, this is especially seen in in the word death. The wages of sin and this power of death, which is tied to the devil. And so now, how do we come out of this? We're all sinners. The wages of sin is death. We're all in slavery to Satan. Satan has power over death. All of these things are tied together. Where is, where is then the life? Colossians 1 verse 14 together with verse 13. He, that is Jesus Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. That is where we are taken out of the dominion of Satan's slavery, out of the imprisonment of sin and death, which in a certain in a certain sense Satan is that prison keeper. In a certain sense God allows Satan to have that power of death. And so uh, the picture Again, we're, we're, we're pulling together uh, various texts, but, but the picture is that we are in, in Satan and sin and death's grip. We're in that prison until Christ enters the scene. And we can pull all these pictures together because they're so closely related. And so what is, what is one more text that completes the picture? Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Who has the keys of life? It is Jesus Christ who has the keys of life. And so the picture is this, that we are in the 
prison. We are in the realm of sin and death and a place where Satan has been allowed to exercise power. But we should not fear because in Christ, the one who has the key to open and to overcome and to deliver and set free, when Christ comes, the one who has the key comes and it is all broken. It is all broken. And it's deliverance from death to life. This is, and this is the, the imagery. And this is, this is the battle on the cross. The cross is the night of Satan's apparent victory. But Christ conquers death. The cross is the place where the serpent bruises the heel of the seed of the woman. But the head of the serpent will be crushed. Because Christ has the key of life and death. It is a death that leads to life. It is a death that is tied to the conquering of death. It's the death of death, as John Owen said, in the death of Christ. And so here is the victory. Here is the key. Here is where it is finished. Here is where our eyes must go. We look to Jesus Christ. And then certainly, brothers and sisters, when we take the completion, when we take the the from death to life realities of what Jesus Christ accomplishes, certainly the victory over death is worthy of worship. And as we kind of move from our second point to our third point, let us let us speak about repentance and then and then move to worship. Because again, these these images are not they're not just images. We think about the domain of slavery and and death and and being under the power of Satan. Those are those are realities apart from Christ. That is where we are apart from Christ. We must repent and trust in the only one who conquers. Trust in the only one who can declare not guilty. Trust in the only one who can say free. But then we but then we but then we move and we say, I am free in Christ. He has won the victory. What is my response? I must worship. Christ. I must give all praise to him. Why why do why do we why do we come to church? Why do we gather together? It's for God. It's to worship God. 
That is why we come together. That is why we are glad to gather on the on the beginning of the day and the end of the day in a special way to worship Him. Look at what He has done. Look at what we are set free from in Christ. It also declares to us, question answer 80, that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father where he wants us to worship him. This is what we were made for. Adam and Eve were on the first temple when they were in Eden before they were cast out by sin. And so as we as we repent of our sins, as we look to Christ as we come out of sin and out of death and into life and into union with Christ. This is this is this is our desire. And Christ is so worthy of our worship. So worthy of our praise. This is what we were made for. This is what we must do. This is where our hearts are content. Now, we think about worship and the Lord's Supper is is an act of worship. What what then are basic positions that a person can have? Think about the, uh, the end of question answer 81. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And so, I'm going to. I'm basically paraphrasing from the uh, uh, the 1800s Dutch preacher Herman Veldkamp here. There's four. There's four basic positions that a person can have with respect to the Lord's Supper and and the worship that is due to God through the Lord's Supper. Looking back on the reality. The first position is the person who is unwilling to come and unrepentant. And who is that? That is that is the unbeliever. That is the unbeliever. They are unwilling to come. They don't want to worship God in any way. And they are unrepentant. That is the unbeliever. The second is a person can be willing to come, but unrepentant. And that is the hypocrite. And the third person, the third basic position, is the one who is unwilling to come to the Lord's table, but repentant. And this can happen even as we are called to stand firm in Christ, This is a believer who is in a season of doubt. And then the fourth basic position is the person who is both willing to come and repentant. The one who comes to the Lord's table displeased with themselves because of their sins, nevertheless trusting that their sins are pardoned. Brothers and sisters, may that 
be our position. May that be our worship. Willing to come. Repentant as we come. He is so worthy of our worship. And his salvation is so sure as we trust in him. The only proper option is to repent and come. To eat and be nourished. To look at the declaration of the Lord's Supper and the declaration of of New Testament worship and and how it goes back to, to the declaration. To the cross. To the place where sins are forgiven. And then thinking about these four basic positions, let us just briefly say that this is part of the reason why uh, and the fact that the Lord's Supper is a part of worship, this is part of the reason why as we come to the table uh, personally but also corporately together, this is part of the reason why uh, the church should not admit those who are unbelieving and ungodly, including those who would show their ungodliness by their bad fruits without repentance. There, there must be a, a, a proper desire to come, willing and repentant. And then, uh, brothers and sisters, we come worshiping Christ together. We come rejoicing together in His once for all accomplishment of salvation and life. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, surely you are the God of